If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. But what the paintings display is a man of a rather rare compassion. Not just a great general, but somebody who could sympathise, who could empathise with his troops. That was Alan Forrest on Napoleon's propaganda painting. What's very interesting about the, the culture of Mussolini, I think, is the way in which people bend over backwards, almost instinctively, I think, to, to try and give him the benefit of the doubt. And that was Christopher Duggan on Fascist Italy. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast with me, Rob Attar. This podcast is brought to you by the team behind BBC History magazine, which is the UK's best-selling history magazine. You can find it in all good news agents and on subscription. Plus, we have a Kindle edition available on the Amazon website and an iPad edition on the Apple newsstand. And we've also recently launched a Kindle Fire edition and that's available on the Kindle newsstand. You can find out more details of our digital issues, plus great subscription offers on our website, which is historyextra.com. If you have any comments about the podcast or anything else that we do, you can get in touch with us through email, podcast at historyextra.com, on Twitter at historyextra, or on Facebook forward slash historyextra. In this week's episode, we're discussing two pivotal figures in the history of modern Europe. Napoleon and Mussolini. Our first interviewee is Professor Alan Forrest, an expert on Napoleonic France. He's written a feature for the Christmas issue of BBC History magazine about Napoleon's use of propaganda in words and pictures. The magazine's publisher, Dave Musgrove, caught up with him to delve a little more deeply into Bonaparte's character and cultural leanings. The main point that you're making in the feature is that Napoleon is is, uh, famous as a a general, principally. That's what what most people would associate him with. But um, you think that we should also recognise him perhaps as a man of culture and propagandist. So which of those is correct? And uh, and perhaps you should just explain to us why you think that's the case. Yes, it's it's a good question. I came to this really when I started writing a biography of Napoleon and realised that there were different narratives that were being told, one, a very powerful one, by himself and by his supporters, and that he started essentially a a long work of propaganda very early in his career. Was he really interested in, in the arts? I'm not sure. He went along to operas in Paris. He appeared to be excited by art exhibitions. But there was also a very strong degree of self-interest. He used artists, as indeed modern politicians have been known to do, um, in order to win over public opinion, in order partly to persuade public opinion that he wasn't just a general or a man interested in politics, but that he was also a consummate son of the Enlightenment, interested in world cultures. Was he really interested? I don't know. He read quite a lot of history. He compared himself at various times to Charlemagne. As an educated man of the 18th century, he had read quite a lot of the classics. He was seeped in the literature of his time. He wasn't an ignoramus, but whether he was really interested in art for art's sake and whether he had any aesthetic sense is more difficult to judge. He certainly understood the value of art to him in terms of winning over his own population. So let's go back maybe to... Napoleon's early years. Um, is there any evidence that you can see in in the character of the man that was of a cultural bent? Was it as a young man? Did he did he show any interest in culture, as far as you can ascertain? He is alleged to have read very deeply and very widely when he was at military academy in Brienne. There is a representation of him that makes him appear quite scholarly and actually quite solitary in some ways. Um, it's difficult to tell. What we do know from the early years is that he does seem to have read quite a few of the more radical 
Enlightenment authors of the 18th century, and that he himself dabbled in a certain amount of uh, what you might call rather sort of juvenile philosophy. It, it wasn't very profound stuff, but it followed in the, in the lines of Rousseau and the other uh, philosophers whom he'd read at the time. He also, as I say, read the classics, and he started that fairly young. Um, and, and, and later, when he travelled Europe uh, as, a, as a general with his army in the field, uh, one of the rare and interesting things about Napoleon is that he takes a little library along with him, and he does seem to read, including works of history and, and work, works of classical literature, um, at night as he's on campaign. So I, I think there is a certain side to him that is genuinely cultivated and genuinely interested in the arts, whether any more so than a person of his class, minor aristocracy in Corsica um, in the 18th century would be expected to be. I don't know. I mean, he, 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 he reflects his times fairly fairly accurately, I think, in that way. And you just described him as a, a son of the Enlightenment, so would you kind of expect him to be of a cultural bent, given what was going on in the background in, in, in European society and culture? Well, it was the second half of the 18th century. People read not just the, the great authors of the Enlightenment, but a rather more popularised, vulgar, vulgarised, if you like, literature that came, came out of it. Um, there were lots of pamphlets doing the rounds, pamphlets attacking authority, of course, attacking clerical authority. Um, and, and Napoleon seems to have read some of these and to have contributed to that uh, sort of general trend in writing and, and reading. Would I expect him to have done possibly... <laughs> As a young aristocrat, he would have had the opportunity to do so that would have been denied to others. But, of course, many would have been deeply conservative, would have rejected that kind of literary approach. He does seem, in his early days, to have been curious, interested, impatient, and, as a result, fairly radical. Impatient with the social constraints, the, the glass ceilings he couldn't break through, mm. but also, I think, impatient in his own career in the army, that there were aristocrats who were being promoted simply because they were the sons of aristocrats, and, and he was determined to get where he was going to, to go on merit. So, so there is an element in Napoleon that is fairly left-wing, if you like, in, 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 in the, the 18th century context. Someone who would be quite likely, for instance, to welcome the French Revolution in, in 1789. The other aspect of, of culture in Napoleon is, is this propaganda element. And I think you say in the, in the feature um, that he had a rare flair for publicity and propaganda. So how did that manifest itself then? Can you give me a few examples of, of what you mean by that? Yes, he, he is quite deliberate about it. <clears throat> there's, there's, no, there's nothing left to accident. I mean, for instance, under the revolution in general, it was quite common to inform members of your regiment about the achievements of the army by running a small newspaper that would simply circulate among the troops. Napoleon did that. But what he also did was he hired some of the best journalists of the day, and there were plenty around in the post-Jacobin period, people who'd been very exciting journalists in Paris in 1791-23, who'd been discarded for one reason or another um, in the course of the, of the decade. Um, one or two of these accompanied him to Italy, and they were sending back copy for newspapers in Paris. He wasn't only circulating his troops and his army, that was, that was one audience that he considered very important. But the second audience, and perhaps the more important audience, was the general public, the political class in Paris. And from a very early period, he is quite deliberately using that press to create opportunities for himself. He's, he, he, it's not, it's not brutal publicity. In some ways, it, it's extremely well done. He doesn't praise himself all the time. He praises the soldiers. He praises their commitment, their bravery, their sacrifice. But then at key moments, like, for instance, just before Brumaire, when the plot was being hatched in Paris by Paul Barat and others, to, have a, to stage a coup d'etat, to overthrow the directory, and to come to power... Bonaparte was a conspirator, and a few days before the Brumaire revolt, the, the insurrection, suddenly the tone of his press changes, and it becomes focused almost entirely on him, on his swift actions, on his incisive nature, on his brilliance, his fleet of foot. Um, 
that wasn't left to chance. It was the use of propaganda, I think very intelligently, not just to, to, to bloat his own ego, but actually to manipulate the political situation. And um, I think there's something very modern about that, in a way. I mean, kings, in a sense, had always been propagandist. Heads on coins, equestrian statues in, in uh, public squares and so on. There was an element of, of the use of art and imagery and representation for propagandist purposes, which is there with, with all regimes. But Napoleon is doing this as a humble army officer, and how much more clearly does he do it when he comes to power and when, as emperor, he can actually command these things rather as, as kings could do. I'm not saying he imitates kings entirely. He does things rather differently. His audience is also slightly different. Um, but he does it with a great deal of aplomb, and he uses the best people around him. For instance, um, getting a, a key figure to, to run the Louvre, to, to bring in artistic collections, to display these before the French people. I mean, all that is done as well as a reflection of the emperor's great interest in the, in the arts and culture. And you mentioned that he hired journalists. Yes. What do you mean by that? He, he paid them to go on campaign with him? They accompanied the army. And, yes, they were, in a sense, answerable to him. He, he was using them as a conduit to the Paris press because they had the contacts and the connections with the, the, the main newspapers in, in <coughs> Paris. Um, and he was conscious, it seems to me, in 1796 and 1797, um, that this was a political role as well as purely a, a military role. I mean, after all, this is a general in Italy who wins a, n a number of fairly rapid, quick-fire victories at a time when politics at home in Paris is deemed to be rather boring. Um, it's not too difficult to capture the headlines and to become, if you like, the key, the key figure of the moment in, in many people's eyes. Add to that the fact that at Campo Formio, he, as the general in the field, drew up the treaty with the defeated Austrians without actually referring it back to the government in Paris. This is a man who oversteps the powers that have been given to him from time to time, but does it very calculatedly, and already clearly has the ambitions for political leadership as well as for military leadership. It's quite it seems to me quite an interesting case, an early case, um, of a man in a political system which is not stable in the 1790s. If you think of a number of regime changes that have been since the beginning of the French Revolution, of adapting himself remarkably well to that politics of the day. Um, going back to propaganda then, and, and beyond, uh, beyond the words aspect, Napoleon also used images. Yes. Tell me a little bit more about that. Well, when I say he used images, he, to some extent, hired artists. Um, he encouraged artists to paint particular moments of his career, which he thought were noteworthy. And so you get some very um, clear and rather heroic images coming out of the Italian campaign, for instance. Um, the artists of the day are, I think, in a little bit of a bind. How can I best explain this? Under the Ancien Regime, what did artists do? They, they accepted commissions. They painted portraits of aristocrats and other people. Well, that market had disappeared. The Revolution replaced that, really, with public commissions for art. They held exhibitions at the Salon every two years. They began to set themes that artists might like to compete almost for prizes in a particular area. So Bonaparte was able, in a sense, to benefit from the fact that they were being encouraged to paint patriotic themes. A bit difficult to do political themes, I think, because politicians come and go, and it can take six, nine months to do a major historic painting. If you chose the Girondin, then there could be a Jacobin government by the time you'd finished. And, and, and people tended to eschew these subjects, whereas military subjects were safe. They were patriotic campaigns. And he was uh, a very photogenic general who 
in a way, created propaganda from that situation. I mean, to give you a, a couple of examples, there are some wonderfully handsome paintings by, by, by David and, <clears throat> and others of um, Bonaparte on campaign. It's a very famous one of him on a great white charger crossing the Alps. You don't cross the Alps on a white charger. You probably cross them on a donkey, which is possibly how he got there. I mean, the painting is not a realistic representation of what happened. It is a deliberately heroic image. And there's a lot of heroic imagery being encouraged by, by Bonaparte in this, in this period. Once you move on to Egypt, it's even easier. You've got, you've got pyramids and palm trees and, and mamelukes in exotic uniforms. Uh, there's the, the something... Um, it's, it's, it's at one of the same time heroic and it's exotic and it's slightly orientalist and it appeals greatly to the romantic imagination of the, of the time. And, and once he's emperor, of course, he can to some extent control the themes of the salons. And, and so he is essentially, or the state is, but it's the same thing, commissioning painters to paint the great moments of his career. So you get voluptuous paintings of his coronation uh, as emperor in 1804, you get battle scenes from Austerlitz and Jena, and more controversially by Gros of Eilau in, in 1807, where he actually dares to portray dead bodies on the battlefield. That's unusual. You get, get pictures of Napoleon as a man of great compassion, going to um, pardon the Egyptians at the gates of Cairo, for instance, or Napoleon comforting his, his own troops in the uh, hospitals in Jaffa, the plague hospitals, um, at the end of the same campaign. Now, these events may or may not have happened. If they happened, they happened once. He also allegedly ordered that large numbers of his troops who were too sick to come home and who risked falling into the hands of the enemy should be slaughtered and should be shot rather than risk be, be the humiliation of, of being taken prisoner. So, I mean, there's a bit of Napoleon that is actually quite uh, cruel, some would say quite barbarous, um, at, mo at certain moments. But what the paintings display is a man of a rather rare compassion. Not just a great general, but somebody who could sympathise, who could empathise with his troops, who spent the nights in the bivouac with them, who shared their miseries. Well, again, yes sometimes, but not that often. So it's quite easy to see um, what's in it for um, those artists once Napoleon's in power and uh, w why they would uh, display him like that. But prior to that, what was in it for them? Was it financial reward? Were they, did they think that Napoleon was the coming man and wanted to sort of back him up? Or, were they, or was Napoleon sort of browbeating them and saying, and, and you know, demanding copy approval and, and that sort of thing? Well, I, I doubt if too much browbeating was needed. I mean, the, the, the heroic battle picture is a, it's a sort of standard um, form of history painting and had been under Louis XIV and the rest. Um, they, they, were, they, were, they were powerful images, and Napoleon, perhaps the army more, more generally, would, would wish to, to encourage these. The directory itself may have paid for, for some of this. If you go back a bit further the more difficult it becomes to find a, a reason other than that painters were looking for subjects for canvases. If you take someone like David, for instance, during the 1790s, he is a Jacobin, he is a revolutionary painter. Um, he possibly has 50 or 60 people in his atelier in Paris, so it, it really is quite an operation. And David was a kind of court painter to the revolution. History paintings, battle paintings, are part of that. It's part of the celebration of the regime and the, and the victory of the regime. So I don't think the fact that David would paint Napoleon in 1796 and 1797, as he, as he did, necessarily indicates that he was doing anything else than continuing to record the great moments of the history of the, of the directory. Um, David himself, of course, changes cap very easily and becomes the leading painter at Napoleon's court as well. So he is simply, possibly, the, the leading history painter of his day who adjusts to the demands of the moment. Was he a Jacobin? Yes. Was he a Bonapartist? 
Well, later it appears, yes, he was perfectly faithful, perfectly loyal. There's no hint of satire in the way in which he presents Napoleon as emperor. And of course there are people who will say that actually there was no great caesura in 1799, that Napoleon did inherit a lot of the ideals of the French Revolution and didn't betray them all. I mean, he betrayed some of them. <laughs> he went quite clearly by dressing up as a king, his marriage ceremony to Marie-Louise, in which he virtually took word for word the marriage ceremony of Louis XVI and Marie Antoinette. There are some things there that are clearly anti-republican, but if you look at the Napoleonic Code, for instance, he takes a lot of the new laws that have been introduced individually in the 1790s and codifies them, and he imposes that on every country that France invades in the, in the 1800s. So there was a lot of continuity, and I think for someone like David it would be possible to convince himself that there was no necessary betrayal involved in moving from support for the revolution in the 1790s to support for the consulate and then the empire thereafter. So, um, coming to a conclusion, we're um, sort of building up a picture here of Napoleon as a man, um, keen to portray himself as a, as a man of culture, and we're not entirely sure whether he truly was a man of culture, yeah. but keen to portray himself as a man of culture, and keen to, uh, to make sure that he was in control of his image and that people were saying the things that he wanted them to say about it. Yes. So he must have been particularly riled by caricaturists, particularly British caricaturists, portraying him in an entirely opposite light, an unflattering light. Um, what was his response to that? Do we know? Anger, I think. Um, you're quite right. There's an enormous amount of caricature of cartoon uh, illustration in this period. Britain is not the only country that indulges in it, but it probably is the country where the art is most refined. Um, there are German cartoons, there are Russian cartoons, there are, of course, French cartoons in this period. And they portray Napoleon differently, but apart from the French ones, usually with, with deep, deep disdain. It's interesting that I mean, for Gilray and for Rowlandson and the others, there was no single figure in the revolution who represented France. You don't get Robespierre being portrayed as the figurehead, the representative of France. Now suddenly it's a blessing for the cartoonists. They have a, they have a man, they have a figure whom they can use, uh, just as they had used kings to represent foreign governments in the past. Quite interesting, they don't portray him as being ugly. In fact, he's on the whole slim, rather dapper, rather handsome, but totally untrustworthy in the way in which he is portrayed, um, at least in the early days. And then, of course, when the years of victory give way to defeat in the peninsula, to the Moscow campaign, to Leipzig, from 1810 onwards, 1811 onwards, it does tend to be a, a downhill slope, the caricaturists are celebrating. By 1813, most of his German allies have joined Prussia and Austria to form a coalition against him. The Battle of the Nations at Leipzig is the, uh, the, the outcome. So suddenly countries where cartoons had been quietly, carefully, modestly favourable are, are producing um, vindictive rhetoric. Um, English cartoons which are portraying him by this time as virtually a war criminal or a caged animal. These are being reproduced joyously around Europe with obviously different languages imposed upon them. By 1814-15 he is quite often a figure of, of hate and of fun. Um, I mean his response is, is, is one of anger, of course. He, he, he likes art, and I include opera and the, and, and the musical arts, to represent the mood of the moment. And the mood of the moment changes. There is the pomp of empire. There is Napoleon, the European monarch, on a par with, perhaps above, monarchs in other countries, which is the image in 1810, 1811. And then by 1815, when he comes back from Elba for the Hundred Days, it's then that you start getting the new image, the, the petit caporal, the man of the people who'd risen through talent in the army. He's very, very conscious of the importance of image at a particular time. And the image that the cartoonists are presenting, of course, is one that he finds uh, defaming and, and, and um, unacceptable. Okay, last question then. So he seems, um, it's a word we use a lot today is legacy. I don't know if it's a, if it's a word that was in, in common parlance um, then, but you know, people 
people in power worry about their legacy. Um, sounds like he would be worrying about his legacy. So if he was alive today, what would he think about the way he's, he's portrayed by historians like yourself? Oh, it's a very good question. He spent a lot of time on St Helena, when admittedly he was given a lot of time to spend, with a small number of friends, Lacaz, Marchand and others, much of it talking, talking about his own career. And it's quite clear that one of the things he was doing was actually preparing his destiny. You, you could say he'd been doing this for quite a long time, but he was preparing explanations, he was talking about the Italian campaign in, in grandiose terms, he was trying to explain away uh, the Russian campaign and, and Waterloo. Um, yes, he, he was deeply, deeply conscious of his heritage. What was that heritage? Well, over the 19th century, of course, it was, it was very dispersed, including um, adulation, people who believed he had Christ-like qualities, people who talked about the Second Coming, some wonderful poems of Béranger, which peasants in rural France loved, which looked forward to the day when he would rise from the grave on St Helena and come back to be among his people on the banks of the Seine, which in a kind of a way, of course, he sort of did in 1840, it was the return of the ashes. Um, what would he make of historians since? I think it depends on the historians. If you look at France, there is still a strange fascination with him. For a long time, he, he didn't do too well in university curricula in France, but that's partly, I think, because modern history ends in 1790 when the archives end, and contemporary history does tend to begin in 1815. So there is a, a kind of interlude into which Napoleon drops. And with the interest in the history of culture, and indeed with the longer durée, the, the history of trends across time, which became so important with the Annals School, then the sort of histoire événementielle, the event after event, uh, became deeply unfashionable, and the Napoleonic history, I think, fell out of fashion. Um, there is a certain amount of vituperation towards him, I mean, among some English historians, there is a, an attitude of contempt towards him, which has not disappeared. But it's rare in France, I would have thought. What you do find, I think, increasingly, is a willingness to try and theorise this period. If I take Michael Brewer's work, for instance, when looking at empire as a form of colonialism, looking at the differences between inner empire and outer empire, and yes, looking at empire rather than the emperor, looking at the regime he built, his achievement, if you like, rather than purely the biography of the man, I'm not sure that Napoleon would have agreed with Mike, or with me, that his achievement was actually the achievement of his generation, rather than purely the achievement of one single individual. But he might have been interested that 200 years on, we are still speaking about him. That would probably have caused him a great deal of content. That was Alan Forrest. Alan's latest book is a biography of Napoleon, published by Quercus in 2011. And you can read Alan's piece on Napoleon and propaganda and see some of the images discussed in the Christmas issue of BBC History magazine. Christopher Duggan is Professor of Italian History at the University of Reading. In his latest book, Fascist Voices, he analyses diaries, letters and other sources to discover how Italians really felt about Mussolini and the fascist regime. I interviewed him not long ago about his research and to find out whether Mussolini genuinely was a popular leader. Just to begin, could you please give us a bit of background on Mussolini? So when did he come to power in Italy and what was the nature of his rule there? OK, well, Mussolini came to power at the end of October 1922 after several years of, of turbulence in Italy, economic turbulence, political turbulence. Um, his own background was um, that of revolutionary socialist in 19. 12, he come to national prominence as really the leader of the revolutionary socialists in Italy. But um, the First World War had led to a change in his political outlook. He'd become somebody who favoured intervention in the war, and that had set him on a path of political drift in a way. And after the First World War, he wasn't quite clear what direction to go in. And he became head of um, 
this movement initially was, the, the uh, movement, fascist movement. Um, but it wasn't quite clear what that movement was, but gradually it took on a rather uh, strong anti-socialist and anti-communist character and gained a huge amount of support in the north and center of Italy. And on the back of this um, sort of ground root support, he was sort of swept to power with the March on Rome in uh, late October 1922. So he, he came to power, in a sense, on the, on the back of a sort of surge of turbulence and sort of revolutionary um, activity among his uh, rank and file uh, followers. But he was actually appointed constitutionally by the king. So in the first years of power, it was a sort of strange government in that it was, on the face of it, you know, constitutional, normal government that was setting out to restore stability in Italy, yet there was this sort of rumbling in the background all the time among his grassroots supporters pressing for a kind of revolution. And it's ultimately that sort of revolutionary surge that um, caused a change in the direction of uh, the government in 1925 and led to the establishment of what became the fascist regime. So was it only in 1925 that this becomes a dictatorship? Yes, in a, in a, in a sense. I think... Uh, it was pretty clear to quite a lot of observers already in 1921-22 that the fascist movement or fascist parties that became 1921 um, was pretty uncompromising in its, its, its dislike of uh, liberalism, democracy and parliament in Italy. Um, so it had a pretty intransigent revolutionary outlook. Um, but I think, you know, a lot of the older liberals rather hoped that they could tame this this, uh, this sort of revolutionary uh, element in, in, the, in the party and steer it into constitutional channels. Um, and it was only on the 3rd of January 1925, after Mussolini went into Parliament and challenged Parliament to impeach him effectively for all the violence that had been perpetrated by the, the fascist party, and Parliament and the King did nothing. Only at that point did it really become a dictatorship, and that led to the uh, sweeping away of opposition parties, all other opposition parties, in 1925-26. So although it was a dictatorship, is it fair to say that it was, in some, to some degree, a popular dictatorship? Well, I think that's, uh, yes, undoubtedly. I, I think, um, first of all, we've got to bear in mind that, that the liberal parliamentary regime in Italy had really, for many, many people, become thoroughly discredited um, by well, in many ways, by the First World War, there have been decades of, of criticism about um, liberalism in Italy as something that wasn't really suited to, to Italy. It led to unstable governments. It had not um, helped to check the rise of uh, socialism, to revolutionary socialism in Italy. So there's a long-standing uh, feeling in Italy that, that parliamentary government simply wasn't working. That was accentuated after the, the First World War with the introduction of uh, universal suffrage and uh, proportional representation, which led to a paralysis in parliament. So by the time Mussolini came to power in 22, there's a pretty strong feeling in many quarters um, that, that parliamentary government wasn't working and, and fascism was able to capitalise on that. And when it, um, it became a dictatorship from 1925 and clamped down on press freedom and so on and so forth and abolished opposition parties, I think, you know, many people said, well, okay, these are sacrifices, but, you know, compared to what we had before, this is considerably better. It's, 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 it's got stability and... More, but more than that, what, what Muslim set out to do was to create um, a sense of excitement around fascism as something that was new, distinctive, um, something that was sort of represented Italy in a way that liberalism hadn't done and could mobilize Italians in ways that the liberal parliamentary regime hadn't done. And he was able, in particular, to, to reach out to the Catholic Church and to get a conciliation with the Catholic Church in 29, though the support of the Catholic Church being there almost from the start. So he was able to actually draw um, people into to the regime as it became after 1925 and secure, I think, very large measures of popular support. And, and this was even in spite of the more unsavoury aspects of the fascist regime, for example, the violence that was perpetuated by them. Yes, I think, yes. I mean, it's, it's interesting to see, for example, what, um, you know, people like the very distinguished philosopher and, and historian Benedetta Croce, who was arguably Italy's most famous international intellectual, um, who from uh, 25 became a fairly outspoken anti-fascist. You look at what he was saying between 1922 and, and the end of 1924, um, you know, he was, was bending over backwards to give the benefit of the doubt to Mussolini and fascism on the grounds that, you know, Italy needed sort of injection of new blood. It, it needed to, to uh, improve on what had happened before. So people were 
you know, saying, okay, the, the, the fascism is, is regrettable, but, um, you know, maybe it, it's necessary in terms of rejuvenating Italy, creating a stronger, healthier political system, a stronger sense of national identity. So, I think people put the violence in the, in, in the scales and said, well, regrettable, yes, but, you know, maybe necessary. And, um, you know, the fear of socialism was also you know, extremely strong in, in 1919, 20, 21, 22. And so, you know, for many people say, well, okay, violence, yes, but um, if it resolves the problem of the threat of revolution, maybe, you know, we just have to put up with that. So, yep, I think a lot of people, people you know, weighed up the violence in the scales and said, well, on balance, something we, we just have to, you know, tolerate in some way. And how much would you say that fascism's popularity came down to Mussolini's own personal appeal? I think hugely, hugely. I think if you look at the um, history of the, the regime from 1925 onwards, there is, um, you know, th th there's a lot of dissatisfaction with the, the fascist party in particular, and that dissatisfaction grows in the 1930s. The fascist party is seen as as um, a vehicle for placemen. It's, it's very extremely corrupt. Um, a lot of dissatisfaction with the party. There's um, dissatisfaction with um, various aspects of, of fascist policies. Um, though I think also a lot of satisfaction as well. I mean, the economic policies, um, you know, with hindsight, it may seem that many of the, the, the economic policies of fascism were a bit hollow, particularly the, the idea of the corporate state, which was which much trumpeted in the 1930s, but in practice it didn't seem to achieve very much. But there's a lot of hope, I think, that, that fascism would be able to achieve things that economically other countries couldn't do. And, and certainly it seemed as if Italy was wearing the, 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 weathering the storm of the, the Great uh, Depression of the late 20s, early 30s, better than many more industrialized countries. So... Um, so, you know, I think even though the economic record of uh, fascist regime was not great, I think many people felt that it was actually better than any other country. So, you know, a lot of the policies were, were popular, the, you know, the public work schemes, the welfare schemes, all these things. Um, but at the end of the day, I think it is really um, Mussolini and his personality and, and what he seemed to stand for for Italians that really held the, the regime together. Um, not least because it was ideologically a little bit diffuse and, and, and you know, wasn't quite clear you know, precisely what fascism stood for. But, but you know, the common denominator was Mussolini, and that's what people, I think, emotionally responded to uh, in particular. And did Mussolini himself understand that and exploit his own sort of personal charisma to try and boost fascist popularity? Yes, I think he did. I think, I mean, initially he seems to have been somewhat sort of reluctant to 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 allow himself to be sort of paraded as this demigod. But I think increasingly from 25 onwards, he knew that the cult of his personality was going to be absolutely crucial um, for the regime. And so um, the party and, uh, and many intellectuals and so on worked to build him up from 25 into this sort of providential figure. The church also played a huge role in this. And Mussolini, to a large extent, um, went along with it and I think uh, was quite happy to develop uh, his cult and see it as absolutely crucial to the regime and its success. Now, I know that in Britain, many people, particularly by the time of the war, saw Mussolini as quite a pompous, almost buffoonish character. Did, did no Italians view him in that way as well? Well, I think some did, certainly. I mean, you can look at um, <clears throat> the diaries and letters of intellectuals, and I think a lot of them were, were, were well aware that, that Mussolini was in many ways, uh, you know, perhaps a rather comic, perhaps a rather absurd figure. But many also um, sort of tempered that by saying, well, maybe he's got something absolutely extraordinary about him. Maybe he is a sort of genius, given all, despite all the sort of apparent crassness and crudity of his style and so on. But I think what... You know, for a lot of the more reflective people who supported fascism, um, you know, for what they they saw was somebody who was able to you know, pull the country together, unite the country, and give it a sense of you know, international standing, perhaps, and um, you know, make it a force in the world. And um, you know, compared to what happened before the First World War, in Italy, it seemed very much the least of the great powers and been rather ignored on the world stage. Um, you know, for many of them, this this was something new, and therefore, you know, even though they could see all the the absurdities in some ways of of Mussolini's style and his and his rhetoric and so on, nevertheless, they could see that you know it did 
work in terms of um, binding together in particular the mass of the population to the state in a way that had not happened before. I mean, this was you know, the, the sort of gap between the mass of the population and institutions had been seen as the great besetting weakness of liberal Italy. Here was somebody who, you know, for all his faults as a, as a human being and for all his absurdities in many ways, was able to actually engage emotionally with millions and millions of ordinary people. And so, you know, intellectuals and the more reflective uh, you know, elements in the population say, well, okay, you know, so be it, it's good. Now, clearly the Second World War was a defining moment for the fascist movement of Mussolini. At the start of the war, were they still as popular, uh, Mussolini in particular, as he had been earlier on in his reign? Well, this, this is this is difficult. The the sort of received wisdom is that that um, Mussolini and the fascist regime reached the pinnacle of popularity with the Ethiopian War of 1935 to 36, and that thereafter, with the um, growing friendship and soon alliance with Nazi Germany, the introduction of racial laws in 1938, that the um, the regime and Mussolini began a fairly rapidly descending parabola towards um, you know, hostility and opposition. Um, I think it's, it's more complicated than that. I mean, it's certainly true that there was a great deal of disquiet about the uh, friendship and, and soon alliance with, with Nazi Germany, a great deal of disquiet about that, and a great deal of, of mistrust of Hitler and, and, and the Nazi regime. Um, there's also a lot of uh, bewilderment at the racial laws in 1938 and other measures such as the so-called reform of customs. Um, but against that, I think there was a sense, um, for example, among intellectuals that fascism really needed to become some, a little bit more radical and uh, perhaps a bit more sort of hard-edged. I think there was, among particularly younger um, intellectuals in the late 30s, there was a sense that you know, fascism had never, hadn't, hadn't really achieved its ideological um, goals, its political goals, and needed to become a little bit more hard-edged, perhaps a bit more like Nazi Germany. So, um, I think among intellectuals, there's really quite a lot of support for for some of the more unpleasant reforms, or what seemed to us more unpleasant reforms, late 1930s. Um, and among mass of the population, well, great disquiet about what, you know where Europe's heading, but at the same time, I think tempered by a sense that. All right, um, Mussolini's delivered up till now. He's got a, you know, he's a huge success in Ethiopia. He's done great things. Um, he seems always to have, have made the right choices. And, um, you know, all right, war with Nazi Germany could be awful, but at the same time, it could bring, as the, the phrase has it, peace with justice, which for many ordinary Italians meant um, a better share of the world's resources and end to the domination. Um, of Britain and France, the plutocratic democracies, as they were, they were called, and, you know, find a chance for, for Italy to become a serious world power with a serious empire of its own. Um, you know, a lot of talk about the decline of the Western democracies, which was not just, you know, there in Italy or Germany. Many countries, I think, were concerned about the um, decline of you know, the state of democracy in Europe in the interwar years. Um, so, I think, you know, a feeling that, you know, big risk you know, getting involved with Germany, a huge risk getting into the war, but maybe, maybe, you know, this could be the beginning of an even more glorious period for Italy. You mentioned earlier that quite a few Italians were a bit concerned about the growing relationship with Nazi Germany, but, but as mm -hmm. Hitler, in a way, was modelled on Mussolini, why were they worried about a rapprochement with Germany? It's, it's, a, it's a problem of, of, of an expanded Germany. Um, there's the issue of Austria, and therefore bringing uh, a bigger Germany right down to Italy's northern border. There were German-speaking uh, groups within Italy's own borders in the the, the South Tyrol. Um, so there were issues about you know just how far Germany would go and what kind of threat it might pose to Italy itself. But, um, yes, I mean coupled uh, coupled with that, um, a sense that um, yeah, I mean the, the, I mean historically there had been quite a lot of mistrust of of Germany. I mean Italy had been an ally of of, uh, of Germany from 1882 down to 1914, and it had been a very un uneasy alliance. Um, you know, g gain a sense that um, you know, Germany's ambitions in Europe were perhaps a little bit uh, too, too, too great, and, and Italy might end up being overshadowed. So I think, um, yeah, quite a lot of, 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 of skepticism about, about, about Germany's ambitions. And you know, even after the war broke out, um, you know, feeling that 
okay, Italy was an ally of Germany, but would Germany really respect Italy and allow Italy to remain fully independent or to have its own share of, say, southern Europe? So, a lot of, lot of uncertainty, I think, about, about the, 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 the German alliance. And you mentioned that up until the start of the Second World War, Mussolini still retained quite a high degree of popularity. So was it really the, the military reversals in the war that finally turned Italians off Mussolini? Well, they certainly started to, I think. But what, what's very interesting about the, the cult of Mussolini, I think, is the way in which people bend over backwards, almost instinctively, I think, to, to try and give him the benefit of the doubt. I mean, because it is the sort of, like, the sort of point of coagulation for the regime, um, people create an extraordinary myth around Mussolini as somebody who was, um, you know, unimpeachably honest, that he was a great patriot, a man of genius, a man of providence, as, as, as the church said, and that he was not to blame for what was going wrong. Um, I mean, even after the the extraordinary reversals, military reversals in uh, in in Greece, for example, from the autumn of 1940, um, disasters in North Africa, um, people often didn't blame him. They said, you know, this is because, unfortunately, he's got around him corrupt advisors, uh, incompetent people. Um, it's interesting to see in diaries and letters the extent to which people say that Mussolini is basically a victim, a victim of, of uh, you know, people like uh, the much-hated Ciano, the foreign minister. Um, even of course, Mussolini appointed him and he was his uh, son-in-law. But it is extraordinary to see how uh, let's say people want to protect Mussolini, the image of Mussolini, and, and, and see him as somebody who is there still as the point of, of hope at the top of the regime. And it's particularly interesting to see that the, the more desperate things become in 1942 to 1943 in particular, that you get extraordinary letters from, from being written to him in which you know, they, they sort of pledge themselves even more fully to him and saying, I believe in you, we will win, you, know, you are the, the, the best thing in Italy and you know, I'm you know, sorry you've got these dreadful advisors, but you know, you're, you're, you're our salvation. So, so when the fascist Grand Council did then decide to depose Mussolini, would that have been actually quite an unpopular step for the general population? Well, not unpopular in the sense that by then, I think, um, people were desperate to get out of the war. Um, you know, by the second half of 1942, it's pretty clear, I think, that Italy had made the wrong choice in going to war with, with Germany um, and that Italy was going to end up on the losing side. The aerial bombardments by the allies of Italian cities in particular were causing huge uh, problems, people were having to clear out of the cities, um, Italy hadn't got proper air defences, and the morale in the cities in particular was, was, was declining rapidly in the course of 42 and early 43. So I think there was a, a widespread mood in much of the country, particularly in the towns, but also to some extent in the countryside, um, of, you know, please, let's, let's get the war over and done with, let's get out of it. And so Mussolini is uh, deposed on the 25th of, of July and arrested and replaced by Marshal Badoglio as Prime Minister. There's a huge outpouring of popular excitement and enthusiasm, um, a lot of smashing of, of portraits of Mussolini and so on and so forth. Though I think much of the mood then, the euphoria that sweeps across the country, certainly in the big cities, cities in northern Italy, is one of excitement that peace is now going to be coming. And of course, that was an illusion. And so when Mussolini was then reinstated by the Nazi regime, did he retain any of his old popular appeal or was it clear to everyone that he was just a puppet by this point? Well, it was, it was fairly clear, I think, that he was a puppet, but that, I think, fed into to these ideas that Mussolini is a victim. So, you know, in some ways, that could help those that, that, that retained faith in him. Um, yes, I think there were plenty of people um, who... You know, still believed in, in, in Mussolini or still wanted to keep faith with the faith that they'd had for the best part of 20 years. We get, um, you know, quite a lot of people who make a, a choice after the armistice is declared in September 43 to, to go and, and pledge their support um, to uh, Mussolini, um, the Republic of Salo, when it set up um, in the early autumn of 1943. Um, and Yes, it's 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 faith in Mussolini. It's, it's faith in fascism. It's also a sense of honour. There are a lot of 
people to feel that what Italy did in in in, uh, in between July and September 1943 in in uh, you know going against its its ally in Nazi Germany was dishonourable. This idea of honour was was acutely felt by by many who had served in the army and, and felt that you know what Badoglio and the King had done was 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 dishonourable. So I think. Um, you know, there were quite important strands of, of, of support still for Mussolini between 43 and 45. Although obviously there must have been a fair tide of anger against him, particularly considering the way that he, he was eventually executed by Italians. Yes, I think so. I think, uh, I mean, I think there is undoubtedly in, in many, many quarters a sense of of, of, uh, of ang- anger, <clears throat> um, of, of bitterness, um, a sense of having been let down, been led astray. Um, yes, I think a, a very complicated mixture of feelings, which um, you know came out in the rather grotesque scenes in in, in Milan on 29th of April, uh, 1945, when Mussolini's body is strung up from the gantry of a garage along with his mistress and other leading fascists, um, with people spitting on the corpses and and urinating on it and so on. A really, really extraordinary scenes, but I think a real amalgam of, 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 of anger, of hatred, of dismay, but maybe also a sense of, of self-loathing at having uh, you know, pledged themselves for so long to a man who later turned out not to have been the, the, uh, the demigod that many, many thought. But at the same time, there were still plenty of uh, people around, I think, who were, uh, you know, Still thought that that Mussolini was was a great man who had been betrayed and was a victim, a victim in 1945, as um, you know, and who who were uh, whose memory deserved to be be kept alive. And what you're doing with this book is potentially challenging quite a cherished myth among many Italians that they you know generally didn't support fascism to that extent and were quite happy that Mussolini was ousted. Do you think it's going to attract a lot of controversy in Italy? Well, it'd be interesting to to see. I think there's been a you know a, a, a feeling for some time that um, ever since I suppose uh, the, the sort of late seventies that there was a sort of I mean consensus to use the word that's that's probably not very helpful, but it's used been used for for, for quite a time by historians. So there was consensus around fascism, but I think a lot of, a lot of the, the talk about so-called consensus has been. Um, linked to discussions about the the structures that fascism put in place to mobilize people. What hasn't been explored, what I tried to do in this book, was to look, try and get inside the minds of ordinary people, certainly those people, and there were millions of them, who you know, cheered for Mussolini and cheered with genuine enthusiasm and see what it was that redrew them to, to Mussolini and drew them to fascism. Um, so I think what will probably seem problematic is is the sort of picture of emotional intensity that that surrounds fascism and the ideas of fascism and the idea of Mussolini um, and the the intensity with which people identified with uh, certain aspects of the regime and identified with Mussolini I think the um, the extent to which I, I would suggest that, that fascism is able to map itself onto so many aspects of Catholicism and derive emotional charge from that, that I think will be problematic as well. But I think it seems to me pretty clear that you know, for many, many Italians, um, you know, fascism made sense because of a lot of the imagery language um, of, of Catholicism. I mean, fascism made a huge thing about the importance of faith and obedience and hierarchy and authority, uh, opposition to materialism and liberalism and socialism and so on. All these things um, you know, resonated for, strongly from a Catholic perspective and I think helped to give fascism its emotional charge. So I think the book's going to be controversial probably from, from a number of aspects, but particularly I think in suggesting that there was a real emotional uh, impetus um, behind fascism, that, that the degree of consensus didn't simply come from people being mobilised through structures, through party organisations and so on. And I suppose because people in Italy were living under a dictatorship, is it is it possible to, to genuinely sort of get to what their real feelings were? Would people have been perhaps scared to express their real disappointment or dislike of the fascist regime because they were worried about what might happen to them? Yes, I mean, there's been huge debates among historians about whether you can talk about uh, public opinion under totalitarian regimes generally, because clearly the, there wasn't the space for people 
publicly to voice um, discontent, opposition. The press was controlled. Um, there weren't public debates and so on and so forth. I mean, there were public debates actually, but not in the in the way that we would accept as being being free. So, you know, there are difficulties um, in terms of public opinion, which is why historians tend to say, well, you can't talk about public opinion, but let's think about popular opinion. And can we assess popular opinion under totalitarian regimes? Um, Methodologically, there are difficulties here because what are the spaces? Um, I've used diaries, a few hundred diaries, um, a lot of letters. Well, uh, you know, there, there are issues here too. I mean, how, how free do people feel to, to write in letters or in diaries what they genuinely felt? Um, letters, of course, could be subject to censorship, were subject to censorship, so that was a bit risky. But diaries are more interesting, I think, and um, you know there are obviously various reasons why people kept diaries, and you can't see them as as simply a mirror of people's inner thoughts and feelings. They could be, but sometimes people kept diaries, for example, um, you know, with a view that they might be published or be read by somebody else. Um, but I, I think it's they're, they're not a bad source for getting into the hearts and minds of ordinary people. We certainly get indications that people at times, particularly in the war, were a little bit concerned about keeping diaries just in case they found the wrong hands. Um, so there were risks involved. But I think you know, what I would have expected, and it's a bit surprising I didn't find more of them, I would have expected there would be more diaries in which people who were really uncomfortable about the regime and want to take their distance from it, I thought they might have kept more diaries. And in fact, we've got very few diaries of people who use a diary as a vehicle for expressing their discontent with the regime. Um, there are some, and some most famous ones have in fact been published. But um, in general, I think the diaries that, 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 that I've seen are, are diaries of people who you know, wanted to offload their feelings and, um, and their thoughts. And, and the great majority of them are, indicate, I think, that as far as the regime is concerned, they engaged with it um, in various ways and, and supported it. So, um, I think it's an interesting source um, and is one way I think we can, and this has been done also for the, the, the Soviet Union, for example, quite a lot of interest there in, uh, in the use of diaries to try and get inside the minds of people um, under Stalin and see what they really felt and, and thought about the regime. So, I think it's, it's, it's a it's you know it's it's a good source, but obviously it's, it's it's only one source, and it's limited to people who could write, and so that is, that's going to exclude those many millions of people in, in Italy who are not particularly literate or who are completely literate. So there are problems, I think. You mentioned just just then about the Soviet Union. Do we have any indication of how popular something like Italian fascism was compared to other regimes, such as Stalin in Russia or Hitler in Germany? I think it's very hard to gauge these things any objective way at all. I think, well, one quite revealing thing, I think, is to look at the, the letters that were written to Mussolini, less written to, to Hitler. Um, recently, I think about five years ago, a German historian published a collection of the, the letters that were sent by ordinary Germans to Hitler. These letters had been um, taken away by the Red Army from Berlin, 1945, and um, hidden in, in Moscow, wherever it was, and been discovered uh, five or six years ago by the German historian. Um, and um, yes, selection letters were published. They've been published recently in English as well. But I think the what's quite revealing from my perspective about those letters is that the sort of rather measured way, very often, that people wrote to to Hitler in very different terms and very different and very different tone to the way they, they often wrote to, to Mussolini. There's also a quantitative difference um, suggested Hitler um, received um, perhaps a thousand letters um, a month from supporters, um, whereas in the case of, of Mussolini, he was getting about 1,500 letters a day from ordinary Italians in the 1930s. And the letters he gets um, are extraordinary in the sort of passionate um, almost religious sort of language that, 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 that people use. So, and I think you know, Italian fascism places huge emphasis on ideas of faith, enthusiasm, and so on. And people are encouraged to relate to to, um, to Mussolini in particular in in terms of enthusiasm and faith. And so we see the sort of you know the the the, the, the 
pictures of cheering crowds and so on in Mussolini. A lot of that is deliberately encouraged and orchestrated by the regime, and I think reflects an important, quite important element, quite distinctive element in Italian fascism, in which in that it, it tried to generate um, you know, passion and emotion among ordinary people, but perhaps to a greater degree than the Nazi Germany or Soviet Union. But I say it's very hard, I think, to quantify in any, any serious way um, levels of enthusiasm or support between one regime and another. And, and just taking things forward to the present now, how, how is Mussolini viewed by Italians in the 21st century? I think um, in very mixed ways. Because um, uh, after 1945, Italy became a republic. And it was a republic that was founded on... These, as far as the the constitution was concerned, on the the uh, values of resistance, on the values of anti-fascism, but Italy had no systematic purge, um, and indeed a, a, a overtly neo-fascist party was set up at the end of 1946. Even though the constitution, which came to effect in 1948, said it was uh, against the constitution to in any way um, continue or to celebrate uh, the fascist party. Um, and I think um, one of the problems with Italy was that the values of anti-fascism were upheld most strongly by the Communist Party, um, less strongly by by other parties. And one difficulty with that has been that once communism was discredited at the end of the 1980s and 1990s and the Communist Party disappeared from Italy, this opened the way for the the right, uh, particularly Berlusconi and his allies, to try to discredit anti-fascism by saying that anti-fascism was essentially synonymous with communism. Communism, communism is discredited and therefore one could suggest that anti-fascism should be discredited as well. And there's been a quite a strong campaign ever since the early 1990s to um, uh, discredit anti-fascism, to uh, downplay the importance of the resistance, um, to suggest that there was morally no difference, for example, between the partisans on the left in 1943-45 and those who supported Mussolini still in 1943-45 and fought for the Republic of Salo. Um, and we've got uh, people like Berlusconi, but other prominent politicians as well, quite publicly making very positive remarks about Mussolini. Um, Berlusconi, for example, um, about 10 years ago, did a, an interview with Spectator newspaper in which he, you know, he said, jokingly, you know, Mussolini never killed anyone and that uh, you know, the, the, the standard punishment under fascism or confino of internal exile was just a holiday camp. But that's part of a, a whole series of um, very sort of positive messages that have been made by senior public figures um, in Italy about fascism. It's led to really quite remarkable levels of tolerance for sympathy and support for for Mussolini and fascism. Just to give you one example, which rather shocked me when I discovered it this, uh, this summer, um, probably the most notorious of all fascist generals, celebrated by fascism as a sort of embodiment of the fascist new man for his ruthlessness, Manco Rodolfo Graziani, was responsible for many, many the most brutal aspects of the military campaigns in uh, in Libya and Ethiopia in the 1930s and again during the Second World War and the general who was put in charge of the armed forces in northern Italy in 1943 to 45 and was found guilty of war crimes after the Second World War and sentenced to 19 years in prison. They actually served two. This summer, his hometown near Rome um, inaugurated a memorial park to him at public expense with uh, a large monument to Graziani. And um, the celebrations uh, were led, amongst others, by a Catholic priest who did a commemorative speech to, to Graziani. So I think that's symptomatic of how there are these str strands of uh, you know, sympathy and support and rehabilitation, if you like, of, of, of fascism still lurking around in Italy. There are strands that are certainly, you know, not necessarily very widespread. But I think what is, you know, a little bit disturbing, I think, is the extent to which uh, people in, in you know, quite senior positions in public life 
um, can feel that it's quite acceptable to say positive things about fascism and Mussolini. That was Christopher Duggan. Fascist Voices, an intimate history of Mussolini's Italy, has been published recently by Bodley Head. Christopher wrote a piece on Mussolini for the December edition of BBC History magazine, which you can still get hold of as a back issue and also on the iPad. And that's about all for this episode. Do join us next week when we'll be having our annual Christmas quiz, so make sure you have your brains switched on for that one. And don't forget, our Christmas issue is out now in the shops with stories on the Anglo-Saxons, Napoleon and the Mayan apocalypse. The History Extra weekly podcast is recorded in Bristol and produced by Dave Gibson. between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.